0: Good morning. It's really good to be here, good to see all of you. Thanks for having me. This is kind of fun. Uh, Well, life can be full of simple pleasures. The internet, in fact, has lists of the top 40 pleasures that most people enjoy, including popping bubble wrap, or (laughs) finding a pull-through parking spot in a tight parking lot, or that feeling of waking up in the morning and before your alarm and realizing that you still have 30 minutes to sleep? How about getting into bed with freshly cleaned sheets? Or uh, finding money that you didn't know you had? Or how about that first day after a very long and cold winter where you hang up the parka and all you have to wear outside is a light sweater? Or how about that first day of holidays, or the first sip of coffee in the morning, or that first bite of a delicious dessert? All of these are wonderful pleasures, but for me personally, I find great pleasure in London fogs. So for those of you who don't know what a London fog is, it's a hot drink with Earl Grey tea, vanilla syrup, and foamed milk, and it is unbelievably delicious. I try London Fog at every single coffee shop I go to, and I have a mental list ranking them according to taste. So if you want to know where the good spots are, come see me after, and I'll let you know. Regardless of how long I stare at a coffee shop menu, I will still almost always default, to the London Fog, regardless of how high up on my mental list it is. And I sit down, and I take that first sip, and it's as if all is right with the world. I don't know if any of you can relate to that with one of your other pleasures, but today we're going to be talking about Psalm 16, and we're going to be looking at a pleasure that is infinitely better than any London Fog. So if you have a Bible or a device, turn to Psalm 16 with me, and if you don't, it'll be on the screen here, and you can follow along as I read it. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Lord, I thank you so much for the truth of this psalm and, and for the privilege of being able to read it and talk about it in a public place. And Lord, I thank you that you speak to each one of us personally through your word, through our thoughts, through other people, through so many different ways. And, and I ask that this morning you would speak to us, that you would uh, speak through me, you would give me your words, and that you would give us open hearts and ears to hear you in Jesus' name. So, the author of Psalm 16 was King David, and it's not actually known what sort of circumstances he was facing when he wrote this psalm. He could have been running for his life or simply just reflecting on his experiences in life. At any rate, he's describing how he has made the Lord his greatest treasure in life. He's not only choosing the Lord to be his refuge, but he's choosing him to be his everything. And then he goes on to explain how making the Lord his greatest treasure, making him his only portion, actually became his greatest pleasure in life. So in this psalm, David answers two questions, and we're going to be talking about those and how they relate to this becoming his greatest pleasure. The first question is, how do we make the Lord our greatest treasure in life? And the second is, Why should we make the Lord our greatest treasure? So the first, how do we make the Lord our greatest treasure? We're going to talk about three ways that David describes in this psalm. The first is surrender to his boundaries. Verse 1 to 2 says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So this word preserve means to guard, protect, and keep. But it also means to put a hedge about, as with thorns, so a thorny hedge. And this hedge of thorns that David alludes to protects him from the outside and and any dangers outside of God's will. But if you think about it, a hedge of thorns would be pretty painful to leave from the inside out. So in a way, this hedge is not only protecting him from the outside, but it keeps him from leaving the hedge leaving God's will to go outside of it. In a way, it's protecting David from himself. How amazing is it that David actually asked the Lord for a hedge and a boundary in his life? Think of a child, a kid. Does a kid ever say to his parent or her parent, hey, mom or dad, can you just make a boundary for me outside to play in? And then can you just make sure that I don't go past that boundary? Have you ever heard a kid say that? I haven't. I never did it as a kid. In fact, I think kids do the opposite. They're constantly testing boundaries and seeing how far, how close they can get to them or even how far past them they can get. So my parents often wrote down stories about my sisters and I as kids, you know, silly things that we would say or do. And there's one story written down about a time when I asked my mom if I could play in the front yard by myself. And usually I was only ever allowed to play in the backyard because obviously there were no cars. So this time, when I asked, she said, of course not, Beth, you're way too little. And to that, I defiantly held my hand level with my forehead and said, but mom, I'm up to here on myself. (laughs) Pretty sound logic, I know. But you see, the backyard was awesome. It had a swing set, it had a fort, we we had this huge park with with a huge field and a forest. It was awesome. The front yard, on the other hand, uh, had a little tree and that was about it. Yet it was so appealing to me. And because it was out of this boundary, I assumed that I was missing out on something. And you know, I think we do the same thing. We test boundaries instead of surrendering to God and asking for them. When God puts up a boundary in our lives, we think that we're missing out. We could be playing on the swings in the backyard, but we're so focused and concentrated on what we're missing out in the front yard and we think that that one little helicopter tree is so much more appealing. we get angry with God for these boundaries and we think that, hey, I'm big enough, I'm up to here on myself. Well, we know what kind of logic that is. We think that we know best because our natural bend is arrogance. We don't need a hedge, we don't need a boundary or if we do, we'll make it ourselves. And David shows us that we have to go against this natural bend of ours. We have to go against it by asking Jesus to create a boundary for us and then surrendering to that boundary. David also goes on to to show us that we have to go even further than just asking for a boundary because he goes on to say, the Lord is my Lord. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I think this is one of the most humble things A king could ever do he's the leader of the people and he's humbly admitting to anyone who reads or hears the psalm plus all of us who read it and hear it afterwards that he is a leader of people but he's asking the Lord to be his leader the king who has power and riches at his fingertips who has done amazing things for Israel and who everyone loves says I have no good apart from you, God. I am nothing without you. We're not even kings and queens, and I think we have a hard time admitting that sometimes. When we don't surrender ourselves to God, we're saying that we are good and He is not, that He is dispensable. David surrenders to God because he knows that because God is good, his boundary lines are good in his life. Remember verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. The boundary lines that God puts up in our lives are good. They keep us from the cars in the front yard, they protect us, and they give us the entire backyard. So what about you? Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that God is good? Do you believe that his boundaries are good in your life? That when he says no, it's actually good? Do you test or resent or even blow past his boundaries? Or do you ask him for them? The second way I think David encourages us and tells us how we can make the Lord our greatest treasure is by choosing the person, not the portion. So verse 5 says, The Lord is my chosen portion and cup. You hold my lot. So back then, the Israelites were allotted sections of land in, in the promised land. And David is saying that instead of choosing his destiny, or his metaphorical land portion, he has actually chosen the Lord himself. So at a restaurant, there's a menu of, of meals to choose from, right? And we all make our choices for various reasons, but personally, I really like the control of being able to choose what I want to eat. I don't really love sharing with people because then you have to work out what you both want and it's always a compromise. And then you're both being polite about, oh, okay, well, we could get that. I just don't love it. I love being able to pick my own meal. And I would never say to someone else, oh, you can order for me. Yeah, you just, you just pick what I want to eat. Because one, they don't know what mood I'm in. And two, they don't know what I feel like eating. And three, even more, they don't know how much I can eat or how hungry I am. Well, in life, it's pretty similar. We have a lot of life options to choose from. And we have a lot of portions we could pick. And instead of choosing his own meal, David chooses the Lord. And he says, you pick my meal. And in this case, the Lord knows all of David's moods, but more importantly, the Lord knows what David needs to eat. And he knows what will actually satisfy David's hunger more than David even knows. Well, that sounds really great, picking our person, not our portion, but it sounds a little, a little difficult, let's be real. So how was David actually able to do that? How was he able to surrender himself so much to say, you pick my meal, God? Well, I think because he knew that the one person he was picking was the one who actually held his lot. Back in those days before the Holy Spirit fell on all men and women, people made decisions by casting lots. Now, a lot is a, a bunch of small pebbles or small stones that have symbols on them. And I actually brought some and I left them in my purse. I'm sorry about that. But they're, they're a bunch of pebbles. And what they would do is they would toss the pebbles out into a small area and then they would stand there and interpret the results based on, I guess, how they fell or what the symbols were. And that's how they made all their decisions. So when David says... God, you hold my lot. He's saying that the Lord is actually holding his future in his hands. He's giving up control and he's handing over his pebbles to the Lord and saying, I don't want to make the decisions and I don't want them to fall to random chance. God, you make the decisions for my future. You determine my destiny and according to one commentator david is saying that having the lord as his portion is better than the best piece of land that he could possibly ever choose or inherit when we try and hold our pebbles we we try and squeeze them tight in our hands we try and control them and then we try and control you know how they fall and and then we try and control how they're interpreted We're not meant to control our pebbles. We're meant to give them up to the Lord and let him hold them and say, God, you hold my lot because you can. He's the only one who actually can hold our lot and, and, and satisfy us with that lot because he's the one who has planned every part of our future and done such an amazing job that it is better than we could ever think, ask, or imagine. So for me, this year has had a real common theme of surrender and giving up control. And I realized that deep down, I didn't actually trust God to hold my pebbles. And I doubted if he was actually good or not. And God spoke to me about this in sort of a vision one night. And um, in this kind of vision thing, he took me up this mountain and to a clearing. And when we got to the clearing, I saw what I knew was an altar. And for some reason, I knew it was the altar that God had taken Abraham to and demanded sacrifice. And when I saw that, I just inwardly groaned because I knew, oh, Jesus is telling me to surrender now. Okay. Okay gonna mean sacrifice it's gonna mean pain and that's gonna be hard but I knew I knew that I I had to do it and I and I wanted to in some way and so there were these stairs up this altar and I started slowly trudging up the stairs and I got to the top and I laid down and immediately after I laid down I realized that Jesus was lying right next to me on this altar. And the next thing I knew, he lightly pushed me off so that I just stood next to it watching him. And I realized then that all this time, I had pictured it as though I was slowly trudging up these stairs alone, and that Jesus was standing off to the side, pointing at me and telling me what to do and saying, you go up those stairs. And it felt lonely, and it felt unloving, and it felt distant. And it felt hard, and I didn't like it. And, and I realized in this moment, in this vision, that I was wrong. That it was actually the opposite. That I wasn't trudging up these steps of surrender alone, And I wasn't lying down on the altar, surrendering myself alone. In fact, Jesus was with me, enabling me to surrender, helping me along the way. And I also realized that Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't already done. Because 2,000 years ago, he laid down on the altar, which was the cross, and he lightly pushed us off and took our punishment. So can I trust him to help me to surrender? Yeah. Can I trust him to hold my pebbles? Yeah. Can you trust him enough to hold your pebbles? Your future? are you trying to control them and squeeze them tight in your hand? Are you trying to control your portion or are you choosing the person who is holding your pebbles right now? The third way that I that we're going to talk about in which David tells us that we can make the Lord our greatest treasure is remembering our true inheritance. So verse 6 says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. In order to truly make the Lord our treasure, we have to see him as our inheritance. So as you can maybe guess by now, Psalm 16 has been one of those life scriptures for me. And I used to quote this particular verse all the time. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And I used to quote it to reassure myself that God's got good things for me, that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to live righteously, and so God's got beautiful inheritance for me. Great things are coming my way. And I saw this inheritance as things. So I saw it as a great husband and I saw it as a great ministry. I saw it as as a great job and kids and, and everything. And to some extent, I think this is true, that our inheritance includes some of our destiny. Well, it includes our destiny, which includes potentially some of these things. But the word for inheritance here is actually the same word used for inheritance in Numbers 18.20 and Deuteronomy 18.2. And in these verses, God is telling the Israelites that, you know, each tribe of Israel has their own land portion and their own land inheritance except the tribe of Levi, the Levites, which were the priests. And in these two passages, the Lord is saying, The Levites do not have a land inheritance because I alone am their inheritance. And so when David uses this exact same word that actually means Jesus as the inheritance, he's implying that the Lord is his inheritance and the Lord alone. And so yeah, our inheritance includes really good things from God because God is good, but our focus David is saying, should be on the Lord himself, not on the good things he gives us, but on God himself. And as I studied this psalm more this year, I realized that for so many years of my life, I had been focusing on my inheritance as all the good things that um, God was gonna give me. And I placed a lot of expectations on God because of that. And personally, I think expectations are just manifestations of arrogance, entitlement, and control. And as I said before, I went through a period of time in which I really doubted whether God was good or not, and I think a lot of that actually came on because all these expectations that I had placed on God weren't being met in the way that I wanted them to be. So when that happened, my whole theology, the whole hope that I had reassured myself with for years that, okay, despite all the rejection or despite the disappointments, God has good things coming my way. That hope, that theology was suddenly threatened because things weren't how I expected them to be. Those good things weren't exactly what I expected and they weren't in the same spots. It was just different. And I thought, God, if I have lived righteously my whole life, if I have been trying to serve you faithfully my entire life, why does it look like this? Why does it look like this and not like this And how I pictured you were this entire time? Why are you doing it differently? And I thought, if this is what this particular thing is like and it's disappointing my expectation, then... Are you even good? And so I got angry, and I got offended with God. And someone else in the Bible uh, had the same issue as me. And it's the elder brother in the prodigal son parable story. This elder brother had served his father faithfully his entire life, but his younger brother didn't. In fact, his younger brother had run off with his share of the inheritance early and had spent it all on worthless things. And so when the younger brother comes back repentant and uh, empty-handed, the father welcomes him home and throws this huge party for him, actually using some of the elder brother's inheritance to pay for it so the elder brother was pretty ticked off and he's standing outside the party he won't even go into the party and the father comes out and the father says son why why aren't you coming in and the father says uh, the son says I have been serving you my entire life and you've never thrown me a party like this and the father says but son everything I have is yours And you are always with me. Implying that, hey, that's the best thing you could possibly have. That is the real party. He's saying you don't even need this kind of party because you have it all. But the elder brother stayed offended and wouldn't enter the party. And uh, unfortunately, this brother and I have shared a bunch of similarities in this way. We focused on certain blessings and good things that we were going to get from our Father. And that's what we put our hope in. Instead of putting our hope and and finding our satisfaction in our Father himself, we found it in, in things that we were expecting to get. But our father is saying exactly what this father in the story said. And he's saying to us, hey, everything I have is yours. When you focus on me as your inheritance, everything I have is yours. And you are always with me. Jesus is our beautiful inheritance. The one who who satisfies us. When we put our hope in him, we have the best kind of party that we could ever possibly have. And, and we get to spend eternity in his presence experiencing that party in just Jesus himself. And you know the side benefits? There are a lot of them. God gives good gifts to us. But that's not the be all end all. Jesus is our beautiful inheritance. And I think when we get that, our expectations are thrown out the window and we no longer limit God. And when we no longer limit God, he can work in our lives and do far beyond all of our meager little expectations. So when you think of your inheritance, do you see the what or do you see the who? Are you seeing the things that God will do in your life or the things that he'll give you or are you just seeing God himself and finding your hope and satisfaction in him? Well, all of this sounds like a ton of surrender, right? Surrender to the boundaries, surrender up the pebbles, surrender the expectations. Does that really benefit us, or does it just benefit God and, you know, cause us to suffer and get through life? Well, David goes on to answer that, and he he answers that by telling us why should we make the Lord our greatest treasure. He answers that and says The reason we need to make the Lord our greatest treasure is because he becomes our greatest pleasure, better than any London fog, any sip of coffee. So verse 11 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the pleasure that David's talking about, that when we get this, when we finally surrender everything, and when Jesus finally becomes the one treasure of our life, we experience the best pleasure we could possibly ever have. And I think he's really trying to get his point across about this. There's a lot of benefits of of making the Lord our greatest treasure, and he says a bunch of them in Psalm 16. But I think he's really trying to emphasize this one, because out of 11 verses in this psalm, six of them use at least one word that implies pleasure and joy. When we make the Lord our treasure, he becomes our pleasure. And for pleasures to exist forevermore, like it says in this verse, they have to begin right now. Sometimes I think, oh yeah, well, there, you know, there'll be some great pleasures in heaven. That'll be awesome, super. But those pleasures actually begin right now because in order for them to exist forevermore, they have to start now. So we have pleasure with God on earth right now. But we also do in eternity. And in verse 10, David says, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. And Peter and Paul actually both reference this verse in the New Testament. And they say that David was actually prophesying in that about the resurrection of the Messiah, of Jesus rising from the dead. And this is the eternal bit. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we share in eternity with him, which means we get to share in these pleasures forevermore. So where does the pleasure come from? Does it come from, you know, getting what we want or from a few of our expectations being met or no? No. Pleasure comes from God Himself. David says, In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The pleasure and joy, the most satisfying feeling we can ever have, that we can ever get, is from God's presence, from His nearness. My dad told me a story about this young guy who came to church once and they'd had a church service and at the end, you know, they had a ministry time with some prayer and this guy went down under the power of the Holy Spirit. And eventually when he stood up later, you know, my dad walked over and said, so how was it? It was his first time being baptized by the Holy Spirit and, and this guy looks at my dad and he says, you know, I scored the winning goal, in my final championship hockey game once. The best moment of my life, and that was nothing compared to what I just experienced. This guy had experienced unreal pleasure in a sports game. I don't know if any of you have ever scored a goal like that. One time I scored a header in soccer, and I was on top of the moon the entire night. But those pleasures, any pleasure we can have on earth, is nothing compared to the pleasure and the joy and the satisfaction that we can experience in God's presence. In July, we had the Consumed Youth Conference, and I was sitting at the breakfast table one morning chatting with some of the kids around, and I was saying, so, you know, how are you finding it? And They're like, oh yeah, it's really great, and we're having an awesome time. And one boy, 13 years old, pipes up and says, he's just loving it. It was his first time out of Manitoba, he was with his buddies, and and so he was telling me all this, and then at one point he says, but last night was awesome. And he's talking about one of the sessions we'd had, we'd had some ministry time afterwards, and... And I said, oh yeah, well, why was it so awesome for you, bud? And he says, the presence of God was there. And he was, that was the first thing that came out of his mouth. And he was so excited about just experiencing God's presence and nearness. And and he was telling me about just how joyful he felt at the end of the night. And I thought, man, you know, this 13-year-old boy... They're excited about video games and eating and sleeping at that age, right? But this guy was excited about the Holy Spirit and the presence of God because he recognized that it was so much better than any of that. But here's the thing. Sometimes... I think that we feel like in order to experience God's presence, you know, it has to be at a church service or, you know, Friday night youth service with dimmed lighting and a nice synth pad going on. Now, I'm not bashing the synth pad because I'm one of the ones who plays it at Panit. I like it. But it's just background, right? It's just the background music. It's the atmosphere. And that itself is not the presence of God. And yes, we can totally experience God's presence in that atmosphere, and it's wonderful. I love it. We could stay in it for hours. But we can actually experience God's presence and nearness at any point of any given day because His presence is in us in the form of the Holy Spirit. I experience this uh, last summer, when I went on one of my runs, and uh, i 'd picked a different route this day, and I was running down this road that was mostly surrounded by field and I was just running along. it was almost sunset, and I was admiring the beauty of the fields around and and it was stunning and As I was running, I began praying and as I ran and prayed, I just suddenly became so aware of. God's presence, and suddenly felt his nearness in such a special way that I actually began to cry on my run. Like, who cries on a run? Maybe from fatigue or uh, pain. Could be that. But I was weeping because God was touching me in, in the most beautiful, simple way. And I hate stopping on my runs. Like, I usually just try and power through it, but this day... I stopped in the middle of the road and stood there weeping. It was a good thing no cars came by. But I stood there as God just met me and spoke to me and touched me and, and showed me how sweet and satisfying his, his presence was. And he was speaking to me, and he was giving me things to pray and, and just ministering to me. And I hadn't felt that in a while and it was such a pleasure and i felt so much joy and i felt complete in a way just satisfied and you know i carried on with the rest of my evening and uh finished the run but that pleasure and satisfaction that i felt continued with me the whole evening and I realized it's one touch, one experience in God's presence that just changes us. And to this day, that's been my favorite run ever. But this is what David's talking about, experiencing God's nearness and presence in, in simple, profound ways that, that just fill us with joy and pleasure. And, and you can experience it on the way to work or picking the kids up from school soon or on the sports field or at school we can experience God's presence and nearness at any point in the day and sometimes i think we we forget that and i think we also one of the reasons why we don't is because we're not actually drawing near to god but god says Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. So when we're hungry for his presence, he meets us and he fills us and he satisfies us. He draws near to us. And if you haven't felt this joy, if you haven't felt this pleasure and this satisfaction in a while, you have felt low, It's time to encounter the presence of God. God is looking at you with his hand out, saying, just come. Experience me. Experience the pleasure I have to give you. Experience the joy I have for you. The satisfaction, the fulfillment that only I have for you. When we make the Lord our greatest treasure, when we surrender to him, surrender to his boundaries, and when we choose him over trying to choose and control our portion, when we surrender all our expectations and say, I focus on you, God, he becomes the greatest pleasure we could ever possibly experience in life when we put our hope in him, he doesn't disappoint us. Can I pray for us? Lord, I thank you so much for the gift of your presence. And I thank you that we can actually find joy and pleasure and satisfaction in you and nothing else. God, I thank you that you draw near to each one of us, no matter how old or how young we are. And Lord, I thank you that you are enabling us to surrender. So I ask that you would um, speak to us about this, that you would continue moving in our hearts and drawing us near to you and enabling us to surrender everything we have, to choose you as our person and not our portion. We thank you for uh, all the pleasure we experience in that. And I pray that you would draw near to each one of us in a special way this week that would really give us a bigger revelation of that in Jesus' name, amen.